You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gcceugene.org. This morning, we're going to be in the book of Romans, which is in the New Testament. So if you have a Bible, turn to the book of Romans chapter 6. If you don't, we also have some Bibles at the back. Feel free to grab those Bibles, take one of those Bibles with you. We want you to have a Bible. It is our gift to you. He is risen. (laughs) I love this about our church family. That we have many people who are still investigating Christianity or new to it, that when you say he is risen, people are like, okay, <laughs> sounds good. Like, it's not even like we know to say he is risen indeed. So I just love sometimes just the blank stare of like, okay, man, that's cool. Thanks for saying that. Where do we go from here? So yeah, so if you're, if you're brand new or this is like the first time someone's ever said it, the pastor says he is risen. Everyone goes, he is risen indeed. So maybe later we'll try it again. So, but this is a good first round. So with that, turn to, first, or to Romans chapter six. We're going to be looking at this this morning. The main point is going to be those who are one in Christ have one with Christ. Those who are one in Christ have one with Christ. Our, our main outline this morning as we work through Romans six, three through 11 is going to be this. Scripture's abundant one usage. So the way that Scripture abundantly uses this oneness language, okay? Next is we're going to look at what are the things that we are one with, specifically in regard to Christ, that we are one with the life of Christ, we are one with the death of Christ, and we are one with the resurrection of Christ. Next, we're going to look at this. We are one, and we have one. And what specifically it means that we as Christians share in the victory of Jesus Christ. So it just, as an understanding, we are going to look at that in life, there's many things that we find ourselves to become one with, or that we attach our oneness with, or that we find that that we are becoming one with. And we can see this through emotions. We can see this, for instance, I was out at my daughter, uh, my five-year-old daughter's soccer game yesterday, okay? So, and those of you guys who have had the honor to meet Brooks, she's the pit bull of our family, who makes the other siblings frequently cry. But just out on the field, when my daughter is playing, I I feel like a oneness even with my daughter. And so she, at one point yesterday, just leveled a boy from the other team. And he ran off the field crying. I'm like, yeah. And then I'm like, you're going to mix up the boys and girls. Just know I've been putting some testosterone into my daughters and stuff. So... (laughs) And so she levels him, he goes off the field crying. I'm like, yeah, and my wife's like, should we say something to her? I'm like, no, we should not say anything to her. Like, for one, we don't even know the rules of soccer. Neither of us have ever played. And two, I'm like, I'm proud right now. But then also when she hurt her leg there shortly after, you feel that as well. And so there's a way that we can connect even like our oneness with our children. I'm going to show later that's not a good thing, that ultimately our, our oneness needs to be that we are united And the theological phrase is that we have union with and in Christ. And so with that, join me as we pray. Father, thank you for Easter. The truth is, is that we get the freedom to celebrate your resurrection every day, Jesus. To know that we are one with you, to know that you have won the greatest battle and have made that victory belong to us as though we were there fighting. And we praise you for that. 
We praise you that we are not left to attach our identity to everything this world has to offer, but instead we have a grounded, firm, unshakable, unchangeable identity in Christ. Father, we recognize that there are people in here that are hurting this morning. We recognize there are people around the world that are hurting this morning. We pray that through your gospel, you would minister to hearts and lives. We pray that through the power of the Spirit, Christ would be exalted and elevated as even Chris was just saying, Jesus, you're already exalted as the King. And I pray that I this morning would just point to you and that we would see and know that you are the exalted King, that we would worship, that we would be caught up in awe of who you are and what you've done. Father, we pray in all of this, you'd be glorified. Minister to us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll have you guys know, I did have a jacket on. Then my wife told me my jacket looks too short. And then Michaela told me when I took the jacket off that I looked nerdy with my shirt tucked in. So I looked a little bit more Easterish than this. So, but then I became radically insecure real fast. So, <clears throat> yeah. So, mm-hmm. This is the same Michaela, too, that likes to say stuff like, Rick, have you ever thought about preaching with the yarmulke? Because when you turn around, you have the bald spot on your head. <laughs> Don't laugh. Say awe. Like, aw. There you go. The truth is, anyone that knows this, anything I, that's come to me, it's something that I've deserved. So, <clears throat> so let's read. This is, this is Paul's letter to the church in Rome. So this is, this is the word of God we are reading, penned by the author, the Apostle Paul. We're going to start ahead in chapter 6. We'll quickly unpack what the prior two verses meant. But read with me, starting in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Again, our main point this morning is those who are one in Christ have one with Christ. What we're going to look at, too, is real real quickly, what is Paul doing here? What is he addressing? He's addressing the church in Rome. And typically, whenever he does stuff like this that we see in the prior two verses, we can look at this briefly. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? So what Paul is doing is in the chapter prior, he was giving a theological position on how we're saved. We understand this as Christians. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That same message, which we call the gospel, we'll unpack that more, is the same message that continues to save us day in and day out. So what we understand is this, is the Romans then raise a question like this. Well, if If our sinning just gives more glory to God, then why don't we just keep on sinning? And Paul says, by no means, or essentially he says no. And then he goes on to unpack, well, why shouldn't we? And what he's doing here is he's showing that when you are one and when you are so united to Christ, when you have this marriage covenant relationship bound up with who you are completely in Christ, then sin is inconsistent to keep living in with that. 
And so what he actually does is he takes us deep into this union language. He shows us how much we have been united to and in Christ, how much we are one with Christ. And so that is what he's unpacking here. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Did you know that scripture in the New Testament uses this one language over 200 times, that you are either in Christ or with Christ? Over 200 times the New Testament is saying this over and over and over again. You are one with Christ. You are in Christ. You are united in Christ. Why is it so important? Because this is our union to Christ. This is our union that we have in Christ. We are so bound up in Jesus that that is what Scripture is telling us page after page after page in our New Testament. This is what's important. And we see it here. We see it here through what's called, and I won't bore you with grammar, but they're prepositional phrases. A prepositional phrase is when you take a preposition and then you join it with a noun or a pronoun. So let's read back through this again and look at all the prepositional phrases in here, okay? And I will highlight those as we read through it. So one more time, starting with verse three. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, there you go, Jesus were baptized, look here, into his death. We were buried therefore with him by, bapti by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We jump down to verse 11. It's one more time. It says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Scripture here and scripture elsewhere. I think we have a few slides also show this. It's not just here. Again, our, our New Testament as a whole is trying to show the beauty of what a union with Christ is and why it's so important. Colossians 2.12 says this, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So again, it's using this language, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. Look at all of these prepositional phrases here. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Over and over and over again, not just Paul, but our New Testament uses this language that we are one in Christ. And why is this so important? Again, if, you're, if he's writing to the church at Rome because they were finding their oneness, they were connecting themselves as one to many things in their culture back then. They were a pluralistic society, meaning that they worshiped a pantheon of many gods. They found and prided themselves to be very diverse in their thinking. They also highly valued power and strength and education. And so they connected themselves and made themselves one with these things. But the greatest thing that Romans would do is they would make themselves one with their citizenship. The greatest thing you could do or become in Rome was to be a citizen of Rome. And in fact, the greatest thing or the greatest loss you could face, which is possible, is to lose your citizenship. In fact, one author says, there would be no worse loss that a human could suffer in the time of Rome than to lose your status as a citizen of Rome, which you could lose in many different ways. <laughs> 
And so Paul is trying to tell them, like, there's these things, Romans, that you are attaching yourself to, you're becoming one with. That is, A, it's not safe, it's not secure, you could lose it. And anything that you are attaching yourself to become one with is something that could be lost. Is not going to be a safe place and a joyful place for you to find your identity. What are the things today in our culture that we tend to find or connect our union with or find our oneness in? Let's start here, because we have a lot of babies at GCC, which we're celebrating, and even a lot on the way, is a lot of people have become one with parenting, or we, we could say motherhood. And I'm going to speak very directly. You will be a miserable person and constantly feel like a failure if you find your identity and your oneness with being a mom. Because on the days when you know that you've failed, on the days when you've yelled at your kids, on the days when you've just completely lost it, on the days when you're fed up, you will feel if that is where your ultimate oneness comes from, like you are a failure as a person. But if you have a oneness that is greater than your identity as a mom in Christ, then even on your worst days, you have something that upholds you that will never fail. Also, that'll crush your kids. If your identity is a mom, and then therefore from that, your identity is in your kids and how they do, say, in a soccer game or something, you could be crushed on their best days or on their worst days if you attach your oneness to how your kids' performance is, even in life. You'll crush them. We become one with our body image, too. This is why it's hard for many people to even enjoy a good meal because it consumes what it might do to you afterward. This is why so much money is spent on anti-aging is because we are consumed with our oneness on what our body image looks like. Many of us have become one with our hobbies. This is a big one for me. When we don't get the time to do what we love to do, we become angry and cruel toward others. It's because we have connected our oneness with the things that we get to do. Another one is careers or even having one. It's all we talk about. It's where our passion is. And again, it can make you really insecure because people all through the ages have lost the careers that they've invested their lives into. For some in the room, singleness is where your oneness is at, which your belief is once I get married, I will feel more complete. Or I, I, I'm, all I can focus on and think about is that I'm single and that I want to be married, which leads into the people that have attached their oneness to relationships. Which is why if someone were to walk away from you or your relationship were to end or be over with, you wouldn't know what to do because you would feel crumbled or crushed because so much of your oneness is caught up in relationships, which then leads into approval. This is why it's so hard for people. And this is why people are sometimes very difficult to be around because of your control that you have for others, because of your control that you need for them to love you and approve of you and accept you. And so we, be, we can become just pretty miserable people because what we need is we need their approval and we've connected our oneness to people's approval for us, which makes us control people even more because I need something from you. Many have become one with comfort. Anything that makes me feel uncomfortable, I won't do because I value my comfort more than anything else. M many have become one with ideologies. Once our life looks like this, once we get this career, once we get this job, once we get into this school, once we get this part of our lives figured out, whatever it is, our future plans, anything like that, then, then, and only then, will life make sense. We've become one with our ideology. And last, and we could go on for many more, just we've become, with feeling, uh, we've become one with feeling competent. The greatest thing in our lives is looking competent. We don't wanna look stupid. We, and we don't wanna look incompetent. We don't, want make, we don't need anything that possibly makes us look bad. I remember years ago, 
being taken into the emergency room, had the norovirus, and I was shaking so bad that I wet myself, right? It's a fun day. I asked my wife to ask the nurse if she could get me a pull-up. The nurse came over to me and said, I'm, I'm sorry, your wife said you need to pull up? I'm like, yeah, I went through her, yes. <laughs> um, she's like, can you not make it to the bathroom? I'm, I just want to be like, sweet lady. <laughs> I didn't arrive here today thinking I wanted to pee myself <laughs> and ask for a pull-up. Of course, I couldn't make it to the bathroom. But, but the problem is, is I didn't even want to tell her this. I didn't want anyone to know anything about this or anything that would ever make me possibly look stupid because our greatest thing in culture is to look and appear very competent. And there's a moment where I was weak and felt weak and felt dumb. And so the list goes on, which is why Paul, the apostle, which is why scripture at large is telling us there's a greater union, there's a greater oneness that you need to have in life. Before you are one with approval, before you are one with parenting, before you attach yourself in a union and an identity at its core with your hobbies, with your career, with anything else, know this, above anything else and before anything else, and just the core of who you are is that you are one united to, in, and with Jesus Christ. First and foremost, that is your core identity that lasts not just now on this earth, but into eternity. So first, we see scripture's abundant usage of this one language. But now we need to see that what, what things are we one with and what things are scripture telling us that we're one with. First, we're one with the work of Christ. So we are one with the work of Christ. In, in other words, it's, it, it looks like this. And we can see this in Romans because it's a little bit harder to see it explicitly here. But in Romans 4, 3 through 4, it says this. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we are, we are at one with his righteousness. We are at one with his righteous life. So we are at one with his work. In other words, when you trust in Jesus Christ and place your faith in him, God sees you just as if you have never sinned one time in your single life. But God also sees you just as if you've obeyed every single command God has ever put forth every second of your life. And it's not because you haven't sinned. It's we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's because Christ never sinned. And it's not because you have obeyed every command by God perfectly. It's because Christ did. And so you are one with the life of Christ. Everything that Christ did, every motive, every command, every act of obedience, every work, he did that perfectly unto God. And then he made that belong to us. So we don't have to look at our shortcomings in life. We don't have to look at our failures and be defined by those things. Each moment throughout our days, as Ian said earlier and as Chris said, we fail and fall short, but we never have to be defined by our failures in this life. That's really good news, ever. We also don't have to be defined by our accomplishments because that could make us very puffed up and, and proud. We are defined every moment and every day, not by the lives we live in the 21st century. We are defined by the life Christ lived for us in the first century. That's what defines us, his work, his life, we have become one with. So we can stop looking at ourselves and all that we do and don't do, and we can start looking more at the life that he lived for us 2,000 years ago, because that's what we are actually one with. But this also tells us in this passage, we're one with his death. Think about that, that we are one with the death of Christ. Look here, verse three, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
We, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. You know, scripture talks about this just like in Galatians. Scripture talks about the crucifixion of Jesus as if we were there on the cross with him 2,000 years ago, though none of us were. The way the language is used is that it's just as if you were there on the cross with Jesus paying the punishment for your sin in that moment. You have become so one with Christ that you are one with this crucifixion on the cross. What was happening on the cross? It wasn't this mean, angry God with a rod out in space floating around. What, what, what the cross is and what it's a picture of is this, is that God is a holy and just God. And we want that. We want a God that'll, that'll uphold justice and won't let anything in this life slide. And so the cross is this picture of just that. God is pouring out the punishment for the shortcomings and failures in this life for the wrongs that we have done on Jesus Christ. And it's just as if we were there with Christ in that moment, one with him, paying the price. And, and that's how God chooses to see it, is that we've become one with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. We have become one as though we were there enduring that with him. And so it's done. The good news for the Christian is that the price that needs to be paid for all of these things we connect our oneness to, approval, parenting, everything, careers, hobbies, all of that stuff, is that's called idolatry. And idolatry in God's eyes is sin. And we either pay for that or Christ pays for it for us. When we put our trust and faith in him, it's as if we were there with him paying the price for it, and it's done. So we are not only one with his life, we are also one with his death where it was all taken care of, where it was paid for. Think about that. Do you ever... You are no longer a slave to sin. You're no longer a slave to sin. When, when Christ went to the cross, he paid for your sin there. He delivered you from the dictatorship of sin. You now, as a freed person in Christ, have the ability that you never had before. You can now say no to sin. Do you ever celebrate your struggle? Do you ever celebrate your struggle with sin? So a Christian now struggles with sin. It's not to say that we're sinless. It's not to say we don't sin. Actually, God sees us as though we're sinless, but we still struggle with it. But do you ever celebrate the fact that you struggle? Your struggle actually shows that you have the spirit of God inside of you. Your struggle actually shows that you are one with Christ. And your struggle actually shows that you're no longer dominated by this dictator and you're rolling over anymore in the fetal position. It actually shows, no, 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 no. Christ is one. I'm not a slave. I'm not in prison. I can fight back through the empowerment of the spirit. So we're one with his life, with his death. But also look here, we're one with his resurrection. Paul talks about it in Romans here, as we're going to be, we are raised with him. We now get to walk, as, as it says in verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We are now alive. Ephesians speaks of this so clearly, and, and I love it as we read a minute ago. We'll put that slide back up, but Ephesians 2, 4 through 7 says this. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Look, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Think about this. The moment you placed your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, your identity was so secure in him that it's as if Christ, and it's as if God sees you seated with him already in the heavenly places. This term here that you've been raised with Christ, it, it, it is a, it's a Greek uh, term, or uh, I'm sorry, it's, it's in the aorist phrase, which means this, that it's referring to a past tense, a one-time past tense thing. And so what it's saying is that the moment you place your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, once and for all time, you are seated with him in the heavenly places. So how secure is your oneness with Christ? Christ would have to be kicked off the throne. 
he would have to go back into the grave. And since that is completely and utterly impossible, you are so secure in your oneness and your identity in Christ that it's unshakable, irreversible, immovable. That's how bound up in one you are in Christ. You, you might say, like, what if we brought a 50-gallon drum of sand granules up here, and some were red and some were green? Can you imagine if I dumped them out on the floor and said, can you guys separate those? It would, I mean, it'd be possible, but it would drive you crazy. Or if we forged two pieces of metal together and, and made those one, it'd be really difficult to unforge them. Listen to this. It is far more impossible to separate you from your union and oneness with Christ than any of that. Earth could move into a different galaxy before you move outside of your placement as one with Christ. You are bound up and united in him, not by anything you have done, but by grace and through faith. That's the good news that every Christian has, is that we have this hope that it's not up to us. We have this hope that it's not on us. We have this hope that Christ did everything sufficiently in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. You know that many people were crucified. Many people went into a tomb. Only one came out victorious. Only one stepped into the ring. Only one came out victorious, ever. And that's Jesus Christ, which means this, that just as you lived the life of Christ, you were so one with him, just as you were there for the crucifixion. It's also just as though you went into the tomb and you left all of your sin and garbage and the, and the things that wants to find you behind. And now the man that walked out of that tomb, out of the lonely, dark place, is the very person that defines you for the rest of eternity. You were never, listen, you will never, ever, ever in Christ be defined in God's eyes as a sinner, but only as a saint. You will never, ever, be defined by your failures in life or even your accomplishments. You will always be defined as a Christian by Christ's victory because he made it belong to you. Were you victorious over every sin in your life? Absolutely not. Have you lived a flawless life? No chance. But Christ made that victory and every victory over sin so much be one with you that it belongs to you that God sees you as though you've lived your life victorious over every sin in life. That's the victory that belongs to the Christian. Imagine this. Imagine that you're going out with a partner to compete in some competition. We'll say it's, it's, it's a decathlon, okay? Right before the competition starts, you die, all right? That's, that's a fun Easter analogy. You, you die. Your partner completes the whole thing by themselves, okay? Does all of the work. But no one sees it because right before the competition starts up, all the TVs crash, all right? All the TVs go down, no one sees it. The TVs come back on, your partner wins, they revive you, and you're standing on the first place podium with your hand raised next to the other person that did all the work. That's a picture of what the gospel is. <laughs> Literally, someone else came, someone else did all the work, someone else did all the completion. They were raised victorious, and we're up there like, we won too. Like, in Christ, those who are one in Christ have also won with Christ. The victory of Christ is we are so one with it that it appears that we have won that race. That's what the Christian has. Do you know what we call this? We call this the gospel. And, and I want you to, to hear this because maybe you're new to church, maybe you're new to Christianity. The gospel is the thing that you're gonna hear at our church service week in and week out. Not, not just on Easter, it is the message that our church is centered and founded on. It's the message we believe that is in our entire Bibles. And it is the good news for the Christian life, that we are one with the life, we are one with the death, and we are one with the resurrection and victory of Christ. We have one with Christ. We call it the good news. So again, imagine with me, if you would, that our country declares war with another country, okay? 
we don't have a choice. We don't get to say, I'm not at war with the country. It's, it just happens. We're, we're at war with them. But again, imagine there's some techn- uh, technological failure. And at that moment, the last thing you heard was that if we don't win this battle, this country is going to come in and they're going to overtake us. The soldiers are sent out. The war's being fought. And again, we wait and we wait and we wait. Imagine the anticipation and the expectation that you wait for some news to come back. You would really hope that the news is good news because here's the thing. You don't have the power and ability in your life to change the news, but the news has the power and the ability to change you. So you don't have the power to change the news. The news has the power to change you. And if the news comes back, we've lost. We just got our butts kicked. Gear up, arm up, because we're going to war. You would live a restless life, not at peace. But if the news came back that we won, we conquered, we're victorious, there would be peace in the land. That's what the gospel brings. The gospel is that ultimately one man fought the fight we could not fight. He he took the death that we deserved, like Ian said, and he rose victorious for us and made that victory belong to us so that we, in God's eyes, it looks like we have won the ultimate battle. That's what we call the gospel, the good news. That's what Christians place their trust and faith in because at that moment, only in that moment, can we have peace and a security and a safety for eternity, which is why in this passage, Paul says, you can trust also you'll be raised in eternity with Christ one day forevermore. It also changes the way you live. I I, I competed in martial arts for years and I was so, my identity was so wrapped up in that world that I remember the first time I lost. I was not a Christian, I was not a follower, I did not understand union or identity or anything like that. I did understand this, that I lost and my identity was so wrapped in my loss that I could not face anyone. So I literally waited until everyone left the stands. And then I came out and I was actually crying in the locker room just to be completely honest. What changed for me is this. I now had a oneness and a union and a unity so bound up in Christ that it wasn't, it didn't matter whether if I won or lost inside of the ring. It it, it didn't matter the result, it didn't matter the income. I remember I started smiling walking there because of the joy and the freedom that I found that I had something greater than just attaching my identity to this. I had an identity in Christ and the oneness that I have with him. We who are one in Christ have been one with Christ. Maybe you're here and you're listening this morning like, I don't know, I don't have any of that. I know I'm wrapped up in a lot of things. I know I'm at a bad place in life. Know this, that there's not a work for you to do or a work to be done. The work was done by Christ. If you want a relationship and a union that lasts for eternity, it's done by grace, which means it's a free gift of God through faith, which means it's available to anyone. Where do we go from here as we close up? Where do we go? First, We live as a rebel. We live as a rebel. And what I mean by this is what Paul is trying to say here is because we have this new union and oneness with Christ, because we are one in Christ and because we have one with Christ, we live as winners. In other words, we live consistent to our new identity as being alive, as being new, as being saints, holy and righteous and pure and set apart. We live consistent to what Christ has made us. We'll fall and we'll fall often but we're empowered now by the Spirit of God, the same one who raised Christ to walk out of that grave 2,000 years ago is alive and at work in us to help us live consistently and rebel against sin because it's not consistent to who we are. Next, we live a faithful life of reminding one another. The Christian life is not a life to be lived out in isolation. 
We need and I need to be constantly reminded of who I am, that I am one with Christ, that, that, that Christ's victory has been given to me. I daily struggle to believe that, that, that God loves me, not because of what I do and don't do, but because of what Christ has done for me. I need the reminder and people pointing me and reminding me in community that I am one with Christ and that in him I have victory. What we also need is we need to be Christians that get out of our Christian bubbles and point others in the world to the fact that we need union and we need oneness, but the oneness and union that we need is only in Christ to satisfy us. That's what the gospel does. We could go through the list we went through earlier. When you know that you have the approval of your creator, it satisfies you. And so you don't have to live a life trying to control everyone else's approval of you. Only the gospel provides that sort of satisfaction for us that we need. What we also do is this. We don't even celebrate our freedom over sin in our life. So hear me out before you think I'm a heretic. I believe that we will experience some freedom over certain sins in our life. But as Christians, we don't ultimately celebrate that. We celebrate the once and for all time victory over every sin that Christ had in his life, that he paid for, that, that, that now belongs to us. So let me say it another way. Instead of us constantly focus on the sin and our failures and shortcomings and even the times that we're growing in certain sins, what we need to do is focus on this, that the victory over every sin in life that Christ performed and lived out for us, that victory belongs to us. That's why we're getting ready to sing a song, at least I hope we are, else it's gonna look foolish at this point, <laughs> called Death Was Arrested. Like death was arrested, we no longer have to fear death, we no longer have to be defined by sin, we're defined by saints, set apart, children who are holy and righteous. Here's my challenge to you, finally, and I'll be done. Some of you have come in on Easter today, and I'm really thankful for that. Here's my challenge. I would challenge you to come back for three months, just give it three months of your life, investigating what the claims of Christianity are, what the gospel is, and how that might impact your life. Here in this earth, how it might lead to more joy, how it might lead to a, a, an abundance of joy, even in, in relationships with one another and then how it ultimately impacts your life for the rest of eternity. That's my challenge to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that we get to celebrate Easter. We thank you that we have a union and a oneness with you, with you Jesus, that's inseparable. Uh, I pray that brings so much peace today and joy and celebration. I pray that we could go to the table, to communion right now, and celebrate the fact that we are one with you, Christ. And because of that, that we have won with you, Jesus. We thank you for taking your victory that was won by you and, and, and making it ours. We thank you we're not defined by our failures in life, but we're defined by the man who walked out of the tomb. In Jesus' name, amen.